Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So the last couple of weeks have been pretty wild on Wall Street, huh? Retail investors have been buying up shorted stocks of the GameStop Corporation, of all places, driving the price up well beyond its actual value. I only bring it up because it's so surreal for me to be hearing about GameStop, a failing brick-and-mortar video game retailer all over the news. You see, we have a history, GameStop and I. Long before it was GameStop, in the early 90s, it used to be called Funko Land. The property traded hands and changed names over the years, but from my early childhood, it's been a fixture in local strip malls and regular destination for a kid who grew up playing a whole lot of video games. I used to walk the three miles from my house to the other side of town just to get to Funko Land. And while I was too young to trade on the stock market, I frequently traded old Nintendo games there for pennies on the dollar in store credit. A bad investment, to be sure, but the real indignity was the customer service. The store manager, according to his little company name tag, was called Don. Now, I always had to work up my courage to speak to Don because he seemed to enjoy giving me a hard time. The man never smiled, and he'd just kind of stare at you awkwardly whenever you tried to talk to him. Sometimes, like some latter-day Bartleby the Scrivener, he'd simply refuse to do his job. I'd like to buy this game, I would sheepishly tell him at the cash register. No, he'd reply, before turning around and disappearing into the storeroom and refusing to come back out. There was this one time I remember, it was so weird, I brought in a stack of old Nintendo cartridges to trade in, and without much affect, Don said, I must consult the oracle. And then he slowly turned his back to me. I stood there for a minute or two, staring at his back, awkwardly shifting my weight from one foot to the other in silence and wondering what on earth was going on. After a moment, he turned back to face me, telling me that the oracle was busy and I'd have to come back another day. Now, as an adult, I certainly wouldn't have much patience for this kind of nonsense. But as a shy, socially awkward 10-year-old, Don made me nervous. I was already anxious about talking to adults, or much of anyone, really, at that age. And his insistence on being weird and difficult only made things worse. Looking back, I can see that the guy probably had issues of his own, maybe even some mental health issues if some of his more bizarre behavior was any indication. But you know, I had my own problems and I just wanted to play some video games so I could forget about them. Staring at the screen with a controller in my hand, I could do courageous things. I could embark on 
epic journeys, slay fearsome monsters, and save the world. But in the real world, I was struggling. I was lonely, desperate for human connection, but also terrified of people, afraid of what they might think of me. And as I got a little older, the light seemed to get almost imperceptibly dimmer. So I lost myself in worlds where I could escape from reality. In his haunting novel, Wolf in White Van, John Darnielle shares the inner monologues of a young teenager struggling with depression. On the surface, everything is fine, but inside, something indescribable, something nameless, gnaws away at him. He, too, surrenders himself to fantasy, specifically Robert E. Howard's Conan the Barbarian pulp novels of the 1970s. And alone in his bedroom, he envisions himself as Conan, sitting on a throne of skulls and surveying the vast reaches of his kingdom. But as he's well aware, his kingdom does not extend beyond those four walls. This is why people cry at the movies, he thinks to himself, because everybody is doomed. No one in a movie can help themselves in any way. Their fate has already staked its claim on them from the moment they appear on screen. That's an interesting observation from a character in a book who's at the mercy of the author. That's how it felt for me, too, at the time. My condition inescapable, my trajectory already mapped. Even at a young age, the first tendrils of depression had begun to wrap themselves around my fragile mind. Its jagged voice began to whisper nihilistic psalms in my ear. And I cowered before it. Whatever courage I had, I buried it deep in the earth. In Jesus, parable of the talents, a wealthy man gives three of his servants money to invest on his behalf. Two of them do just that, earning a good profit. But the third man, afraid to lose it, buries the money in the ground instead, wasting its potential. But this is a parable, and as I said earlier, I don't think this teaching is about money at all. Specifically, what is buried here in this story is a talent which derives from the Latin word for measurement or weight. In Jesus' time, it was a form of currency. But today we speak about talents as things that we excel at, natural abilities that are a part of our identity. You might say that a person's talents, in some ways, are a measure of that person. Understanding that context, what this man is actually burying in the ground are his God-given talents. And Jesus wants him to use his talents to grow the kingdom, not bury them in the sand. I've heard that squirrels like to hide their food because they're paranoid and they're convinced that someone's going to steal it from them. It's like, dude, no one wants your crummy acorns. 
but they hoard nuts in treetops and they bury them in the ground. And by the time they get hungry, they've forgotten where they put most of it. Some people bury parts of themselves, too, and forget about them. Instead of investing their talents and growing God's kingdom, they become trapped in their own narrative, unable to change it like a character in a movie. And in a movie, no one can help themselves in any way. Their fate has already staked its claim on them from the moment they appear on screen. I was probably about 10 years old when I met with my first therapist. Sheila was part of a local nonprofit counseling center for youth and families, and she was a tremendous help to me in those days. I can remember her loud yellow blazer, this was the late 1980s, and her warm smile. She was kind and compassionate and asked great questions, and she helped me to navigate that weird period of adolescence. I often think of her, even now, whenever I pass by the office of the Glen Ellen Youth and Family Counseling Service downstairs at the church. Deanna, the executive director and lead counselor, is a lot like Sheila, a compassionate woman who helps to nurture children and families who are in the midst of a mental health crisis. I only wish we could do more to support them. They serve about 175 families a year on a shoestring budget, and the needs are only growing. After 10 months of a global pandemic, deteriorating mental health is fast becoming a pandemic all its own. According to the CDC, one in four young people contemplated suicide last year. By the end of June, 40% of American adults reported struggling with mental health and substance abuse. You never know what people are really dealing with. Least of all, the guy at the cash register that you only know by the name tag on his shirt. Mental illness impacts nearly every one of us. If not personally, then it afflicts a family member or a friend, a spouse, or a child. And the church can be a place where mental health issues are discussed openly and destigmatized, a place where people can find resources, where faith keeps us afloat, and a place where everyone can be embraced. I know it can be those things because I've seen you all embrace each other in the midst of your fear and pain. I know because you've all embraced me. Sheila didn't cure my depression. I've never, really, never entirely escaped that curse that can turn ordinary days into gray, dull things. Sometimes it still feels like one of those dreams where everything is moving normally around you, but you're walking in slow motion, like dragging feet through sand. She didn't cure me, but she helped me when I was too weak to help myself. Mentors, teachers, family, friends, the church, 
They all nurtured me over the years into a person who could stand on his own two feet, even if I do trip over them more often than most people. Medication didn't hurt either. They all helped me to find my courage right where I'd buried it all those years ago. As a boy, I slew dragons and saved the kingdom. But God's kingdom was always beckoning, inviting me to be more than a character in a video game or a movie, just going through the motions, inviting me to take control of the narrative and change how the story ends. It's still scary out there, if I'm being honest, but courage isn't possible without fear. I wish someone had told that to the boy I used to be, sat him down and explained that even heroes get scared, that even Jesus knew fear, that you can't be brave if you're not afraid. I am afraid. And I think you might be too. So let's be brave together. Amen.